When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 374, and today we are talking about books being released on August 9th, 2022, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Vanessa, hello! Hello! We're in different stages of melting, because it's hot. Yes, but you are in the past. I'm in the future. Yes. It's actually very, very early where you are, but you were awake. I am. So, here we go. And I'm looking at the document that you just logged into, and you are Anonymous Praying Mantis, which is pretty exciting. I love how we just change it up. (laughs) I've been some interesting ones. Yeah, well, this morning you were Anonymous Mink, so... I'm just going to write a stage play someday, and all the characters will be named Anonymous Animals from Google Docs. (laughs) Pretty awesome. I believe in you. They seem to put a lot more work into, like, naming these anonymous animals and making their little graphics than other parts. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The one person in charge of that project is really engaged. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone else is like, Those people are after my heart. It's like, let's do the details and not the actual work. That sounds awesome. Bob, we need another animal. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, they're so funny. Oh, so I, I mean, there's so many different ones. Like, how? Like, I try to imagine like a company where you have this many people logged in at one time that you need to have several True. dozen different creatures like at one time. And there must be, I mean, surely, but you know, there's always just like the two or three of us. So, and I think mine is just logged in as me, which is super boring. Oh, sad. That's no fun. I want to be an anonymous animal. Someday you too can achieve. So here we are. <laughs> it's hot. Because it's August. Yeah. And we're going to talk about books, which is exciting. I went book shopping the other day, which I have not done in a very, 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 very long time. Ooh. I order from Indies online, but I haven't actually been to a physical bookstore in a very long time. So. Oh, yeah. I think I saw you went to print. Did you go to print? Yes. Yeah. Aww. So my friend from Brooklyn was in town, not in town, my town, but in Portland. So I went to see her. Uh, And we went to print and got to say hello to everybody there. And I bought way too many books. And if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you already know the story. But I have a lot of books in my house. And my husband doesn't really pay attention to how many come in, which makes it easier to bring (laughs) lots more into the house. So I bought a lot of books at print. You know, and I got a little bag that we stuffed full. And then I put the rest in my, my book bag that I was carrying. And so I came into the house. And my husband's like, did you get some books? And I said, I got a couple. And like one beat later, the side of the bag rips and all of them fell out onto the floor. And I was like, yes, I got a lot. (laughs) I was like, that could have been in a movie. (laughs) For a second, it reminded me of that scene from, uh, was it Crazy Rich Asians? When like the, I can't remember her name, but the one person who like goes shopping for all the like jewelry, she hides it from her husband. (laughs) Except you didn't get to hide it because the book bag ripped open. (laughs) Yeah. 
he wouldn't know what books in the house are new or not. He doesn't. He doesn't care. He doesn't pay attention. Oh my gosh! And then with how many you own? Yeah, it's like just what are the new well, ones? He looks around and goes, <laughs> "Wow, yeah." And I think I've mentioned this before, but if not, I've I do I do a bad job counting apparently, and thought that I had like so many books in my house when I bought index cards to start filing them mm-hmm. in my card catalog. And I'm probably going to fall shy by, like, 3,000. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Not 300. Yeah. Not 30. Yeah. 3,000. Turns out I have no idea how many books are on each shelf. I'm like, oh, I think I have, like, 3,000 books like, in the yeah, house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Oh, my gosh, Liberty. Not even close. And he told me this, and I was like, I know. You don't know what's in the house. Like, you have no idea. And then I forget that, like, each shelf is, like, double shelved and there's yeah stuff in between it's so great oh my gosh you know i mean it's it's a dream come true i mean not everybody likes to live like this you know not you know some people don't like to have lots of books around some people like to read you know this is my dream like like being killed by my books is basically my dream (laughs) because it's gonna happen i I believe in you (laughs) please don't let that be for many 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 years to come (laughs) um but also short Uh, yeah (laughs) So we are going to tell you about some books soon, uh, but first, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle. Walk, Ride, Paddle is a captivating memoir of Senator Tim Kaine's physical journey through the Virginia wilderness, but it is also a unique and ultimately optimistic perspective on these pivotal moments in history, offering inspiration, wisdom, and hope. With immediacy and honesty, Kaine pulls back the curtain to reveal his inner thoughts during such monumental times. And Kane's storytelling gift and wise observations offer a fascinating glimpse into the mind of a seasoned politician and outdoor enthusiast. Walk, Ride, Paddle is available everywhere audiobooks are sold on April 9th. It is narrated and written by Tim Kaine, Virginia senator and former Democratic vice presidential candidate. It's a compelling account of one man's journey across hundreds of miles of Virginia wilderness and a moving testament to the optimistic spirit of America. So make sure to check out Walk, Ride, Paddle by Tim Kaine. And thanks again to Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I am super jazzed 
to talk about books today. I am every day, but I don't know. It's early. I got the whole day ahead of me to read books after we get done this. I'm just like a book's on the brain. So here we are. I am going to kick it off with my first pick, which is The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings. This is an excellent dystopian novel by the author of Lakewood, which is another excellent novel that came out last year. And I enjoyed that one, but I enjoyed this one more. It's about witches. Um, witches are having a big moment right now. Uh, zombies are out, yep. mostly. Witches are in. Vampires are biting at their heels, pun intended. Like, vampires are making a comeback. <laughs> I love you. But this is about witches. It's set in an alternate world where witches are real. Like, witches are women, and they have powers. And up until quite recently, they've been being killed without repercussions. Like, if you suspect someone is a witch, you can accuse her, and she can be executed, and nobody gets in trouble for it. And it's only until recently that these this has been stopped. And not every woman is a witch, but every woman is monitored for the possibility of being a witch. When girls are 14, they have a separate class, like, you know, the health class where they take you to talk about, you know, girl stuff, but instead they talk about witch stuff and, like, these are the signs that you should be looking for and have you, you know, ever levitated or, you know, felt weird or heard voices or, you know, they talk about the warnings, you know, because you could be a witch. Um, it's not illegal to be a witch, but if you are a witch, you know, there's a lot of different rules for you. You know, uh, women are regulated starting at the age of 28. You have to register at 28 and you are required to be married to a man by age 30. This is a law. And the law does not explain why if you get married to a man at age 30, it's going to change, you know, the your inclinations if you're a witch or what it does for you if you're a witch. It's just a sexist, misogynistic law that's designed to oppress women. And in this world, queer and trans people are also denied rights. So it's basically like our world. And so women are monitored. And if you get married by 30, apparently, like, your husband, you know, mostly takes responsibility for you. So if you're not married by 30, you have to go and, and talk to more people and check in all the time. And if you are a witch... Like, if you do have witchy powers or think you might be a witch, you must register with this with the government and you meet twi twice weekly with a government official, like a probation officer. Uh, there are penalties against falsely or mistakenly accusing a woman of being a witch. But of course, there are groups that are fighting that, saying that everyone has the right to protect their family and accuse women that they're afraid of. Uh, so the main character of this book is Joe. She is a 27-year-old bisexual black woman who lives with her childhood best friend. And she has a booty call named Preston, who she sees on the regular. And now the book starts days before her 28th birthday. And she has not filled out her paperwork yet. Because as I mentioned earlier, you have to register by the time you're 28 uh, and get married by the time you're 30 if you want to avoid all the hassle from the government. And what we know about Jo is that when she was young, her mother disappeared. And her mother was, was smart and interesting. And she didn't believe in witches. Like, there's never been, like proof of witches really like there are shows that you can go to that supposedly you know witches are performing magic but it could also just be like sleight of hand and stage tricks and all this stuff but her mother didn't believe in witches um and she taught joe to be independent and think for herself but then one day she was just gone joe and her father got up and she was gone now 
Her father was suspected of doing something to her mother. He was investigated. Joe was taken to the Bureau of Witches and talked to because if a woman could just disappear, like maybe she's a witch, maybe her child is a witch. They made an Unsolved Mysteries episode about her mother's disappearance. And so now she's 27, and she and her father have finally declared her mother dead. She's been gone for for over 10 years. They've declared her dead. And she finds out from her father that the lawyer tells him that her mother has left Joe a lot of money. She won uh, some money in the lottery, like $70,000 or something, and it's been sitting in accruing interest and investments and all this stuff. And so she's got all this money to give to Joe, but there's a very specific thing that Joe has to do before that happens. She has to go to visit Lake Superior, because they're they're living in uh, Michigan. Uh, she has to visit Lake Superior and perform a very specific task to inherit this money. And it's not something that she can just, like, say, like, okay, I did it, and they, they'll give her the money. Like, she has to go and get proof and bring it back. And I thought it was an interesting thing, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. But, so now Joe has a lot to think about. She's returning to this island uh, where her mother used to go, and it's a chance for her to reconnect with the memories of her mother... She also needs to make a decision about turning 28 and registering. You know, she was putting off the paperwork for so long because she thinks all this witch regulation is BS, basically. Um, and, and if not, she's trying to decide if her booty call could be the man that she marries. You know, he has shown that he has feelings for her. Um, and she's trying to figure out, like, if that's really what she wants. Does she want to be a part of the system or did her mother raise her to fight it? It's an enchanting novel about the inherent sexism of the world, the policing of women's bodies, uh, removing their autonomy, also about love and magic and family. It's about a girl who has lost her mother, trying to forge her own path in a world that doesn't provide a lot of wiggle room, especially for a bisexual black woman. I do want to give content warnings for mentions of misogyny, sexism, torture, murder, sexual assault suicidal ideation, racism, homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. This is The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings. I've been meaning to read her. She sounds very interesting, like both of her works. It's so good. I know it takes, like, obviously people when they publish these books, like, they've had these books in the works for years, and obviously women's issues of this nature are not new, but I feel like there's so many books coming out right now that saw that call coming <laughs> years ago and that are now you know coming out at this time that just feels like everything's at a fever pitch You're like oh the timing like yay but also i hate it here <laughs> so anyway <laughs> same uh anyways okay well let me tell you about my first pick which i really enjoyed and that it's you're invited by amanda jayatissa i'm gonna give a content warning i don't think i actually have to talk about this in this description but there is a content warning for self-harm in the book and of course for murder because this is a mystery Maybe, kind of. So the book is told in alternating, alternating, sorry, perspectives. We're hearing from our main character, Amaya, and also from witness interviews. This is a little bit a la, like, Big Little Lies. We're at the very top of the book. You know that Amaya's best friend, Kavi, is missing, presumed dead. And now we're kind of constructing things backwards. We know that this happened at her wedding weekend in Sri Lanka. We know that Amaya is, like, the number one suspect, and, like, here we go. So then we're kind of, you know, again, working backwards. So Amaya, in the before times, was hanging around. I think she lives in California now or something. And when she gets news on, I think, Instagram that her best friend is engaged. And this is shocking to her for a few reasons. One, she's actually quite estranged from that friend. 
But that friend, Kavi, is extremely online. Like she has a nonprofit that she runs and has become like a total influencer. So she is all up on the interwebs, you know, Instagram, YouTube, whatever, all the time telling everybody every last detail of her life. And she has never once mentioned that she was dating this guy. And so now, you know, she's engaged. And so, of course, all of her followers are like, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? I can't believe it. We didn't know about this guy. And Amaya, too, is like, huh, it's kind of weird. And it's especially weird to her because that guy is her ex-boyfriend. And like, yeah, they're not dating anymore, but she feels a kind of way about it. And we get the sense pretty early on that, you know, something went down between her and Kavi, obviously, because they're no longer friends. They're no longer friends to the extent that she has, like, an agreement with their family wherein she will not talk to or like bother Kavi. And then, you know, again, she was she dated this guy while she was best friends with Kavi. So she's just is getting like the sense that like, oh, it's kind of bugging her. And Amaya is an interesting character because as she's kind of going through the motions and, you know, talking or, or processing what's going on, she gets together with like this other group of friends that she has. And she has a lot of very intrusive thoughts, which is like the official name I've heard given to that. Where like you think some some dark things that in theory you don't ever act upon, but you do think them. So from the very top, we're like, okay, you you know clearly killed your friend <laughs> because so, so just again the way it, you're being set up to, to think about the inner workings of Amaya's mind. So then you know again we're getting interviews back and forth, and then in the next kind of phase we realize that as Amaya is cyber shocking the heck out of Kavi to figure out you know, how how it is that this happened and like, were there signs? She's, you know, going deep into her internet archives. Like, were, was there a hand in the background somewhere or what have you? Kavi reaches out very out of the blue. It's like, hey, I wanted you to hear it from me. I'm sorry if you didn't, but like, please come to my wedding. And Amaya's like, well, should should I go? Of course, she consults a couple people about it, whatever. Ultimately, she decides she's going to go. She's like, if Kavi's asking me, it's because she wants me there. It must be okay. I'm going to go. And she also knows this is about to be one of those big popping extravagant situations. She's like, yeah, okay, it's like a four-day affair. Like, there's all kinds of, you know, cultural ceremonies involved. Like, I'm gonna go. But the minute she gets there, it's apparent that, like, nobody else knew she was coming or, like, supposed to be there. And so, you know, you're kind of like, well, did they know? Did they not? Well, at least Kavi seems to know that she was coming. And then again, we kind of just go from there in these alternating chapters until we figure out what the heck is really going on. And that's kind of all I I guess I want to say, because the rest you really do need to have like unfold for yourself. It was fun. I, I, I haven't, I, I think I've told you all that I don't particularly care whether or not a reveal is something that I guess. And I guess I may have sort of guessed it, but then it didn't stop with the reveals. Like even when you kind of get to the thing that you may or may not have guessed, the reasons and intentions behind it, and then these extra layers like kind of kept coming. And I definitely didn't see those like I didn't see them coming and they were coming Um, but it was it was fun it was again really interesting to spend time with this character because she's got these like dark thoughts but of course there's lots of seeds being sown and you know clues being dropped or not that along the way make you question every last person which is of course you know the mark of a good mystery how it's supposed to go but it was an interesting look too at the you know influencer culture we're seeing more and more mysteries I think that incorporate some of those elements in them um, until we get to what I thought was kind of a shocking reveal. So yeah, I had a really, really good time with this one and I read it really quickly. Um, That is You're Invited by Amanda Jayatissa. All right. Lots of influencer books now, lots of podcast books now. It's fun. Taking into account our current situations. I like it. (laughs) We like podcasts. (laughs) I also like totally made up stuff too. 
I'm having a staring contest with a pigeon on the fence outside my office, so... I hope you win. I'm going to have to lose now, because I'm going to have to look away and <laughs> read that my notes just, for the next book. Just, I lose. <laughs> just say your book notes really intensely at the pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> so, my next book is really intense. It's I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Oof, yeah. Now, that's a title, and I just want to give you... A warning up front that I'm going to be mentioning some very distressing subject matter, including stuff involving children. I will give specific content warnings at the end, but just a heads up that this is about her as a child. Um, This is basically Mommy Dearest for the 21st Century. Uh, If you're not familiar with Mommy Dearest, it was the memoir that Christina Crawford wrote about her mother, Joan Crawford, the actress, uh, and the abuse that she suffered at her mother's hands. And then it was made into a movie with Faye Dunaway. And this is about Jeanette McCurdy. Jeanette McCurdy was a child star. She had a gazillion roles, like bit parts and then larger roles. And then she went on to become one of the stars of the hit Nickelodeon show iCarly. And then the show Sam and Cat with Ariana Grande. This is a memoir about her life and beginnings as a child star. Uh, And she is 30 now, I believe. And so this starts off when she is six And she talks about her life with uh, an abusive mother who had mental illness. And the McCurdy's were Mormons. They lived in California. Uh, Jeanette was homeschooled. Her mother had survived stage four breast cancer when she was very young. And it was something that she talked about all the time. She made them gather every weekend and watch the video when she got the news that her cancer had uh, gone away. She uses it every place that she goes She tells people about it, and she reminds the kids, like, how lucky they are and how they prayed, and and they talk about it all the time. They live in this house in California. It's her mom, her dad, her three older brothers, and her mother's two parents. The house is filthy and moldy. Her mom is a hoarder. They don't have beds. They sleep on mats on the floor, uh, all next to each other sometimes, because there's so much stuff in the house. Her father works two jobs and is not around much. And when he is, her mother constantly berates and insults him and yells at him. Now, her mother is beautiful, but she says that she gave up, she gave up her dream of being an actress uh, to have children when she got married. Uh, so she kind of projects her dreams onto Jeanette. So she, starts, she decides that Jeanette's going to be an actress. When she's like six years old, she tells Jeanette she's going to be an actress. Now, Jeanette is already used to her mother's moods at this point, and she just wants to please her mother. And, you know, they all sort of tiptoe around her. And so she says, yes, I want to be an actress. But she doesn't really know what this entails. And her mother starts taking Jeanette to auditions. And she's basically, she's a natural. Um, she doesn't get all the auditions that she tries out for, but, you know, she gets a lot. She doesn't enjoy it, but she wants to make her mother happy. And so then her mom starts her on dance classes. She takes 14 dance classes a week and she takes acting classes. And all this time her mother butts in, you know, where parents are not supposed to be. They're not supposed to sit in on the auditions. They're not supposed to, you know, park in these certain lots. But she just makes everybody feel bad, tells them that, you know, she had cancer. And she uses it as an excuse to gain sympathy and to get access so that she's constantly watching Jeanette, which makes her more nervous, which means that if she doesn't do well, you know, her mother's disappointed and she sees it. Her mother is abusive both emotionally and physically towards Jeanette. She's not allowed to go to the bathroom on her own. She makes all her kids shower together until they're well into their teens. Um, She checks them every day for lumps because she doesn't want them to have cancer like she did. Uh, And Jeanette develops OCD, you know, and, and a lot of anxiety. And 
she starts thinking that the Holy Ghost is talking to her. She knows that the Holy Ghost is somebody very important in religion. And she hears the Holy Ghost telling her to, like, touch things five times or spin around this many times. And she, she thinks it's the Holy Ghost. And she even tells her mother this. And her mother is too self-involved to notice. Uh, and, and while this is going on, her career is growing. And, and she hates acting. And it keeps going on. And she even mentions it at one time. You know, she tells her mother she doesn't want to act anymore. And her mother completely freaks out. You know, and so Jeanette's like, oh, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You know, just kidding. And so when she's 12 or 13... She starts to mature, and so her mother starts Jeanette on a very restrictive diet of calorie counting and starvation to try and keep her from growing up. And she's, you know, limiting the amount that she's allowed to eat and to the point where she's severely underweight. Um, the doctors and, and other parents, you know, notice and they, you know, start mentioning, you know, they think that, you know, Jeanette is anorexic and her mother should watch out for it. And her mom just brushes it off. She says, oh, I watch her. You know, she eats normal. It's just how she is, even though it's an obvious lie because her mother is is keeping food from her. Um, and she brushes off anything that anybody says about Jeanette. You know, her grandfather is actually the one who shows a lot of concern for her. He notices, like, her counting and, and he, he wishes that she just had a chance to be a kid, he tells her. She has no privacy and no way out. And then her mother, just as Sam and Kat starts, the show that she is on with Ariana Grande after iCarly, her mother gets sick again, and this time she dies. And now Jeanette has these conflicting feelings of shame and relief because there isn't someone there constantly berating her, constantly checking everything she does, you know, invading her privacy. It's a story of how alone she was, even as she became famous, you know, how problematic Hollywood is to not just adult actors, but children. Uh, there, there were times that she was told that she was too homely for a role. Um, she was made to cry on cue. Her special talent was crying on cue. That's what her agent put down. So she would have to do it multiple times a day for rehearsals or for, for filming. And she found it to be incredibly mentally draining. There was also a predatory executive on the set of one of her shows who took photos of her in a bathing suit when she was young. Uh, and would give her back rubs. And th at the end of, of the run of the show, Nickelodeon, she says they tried to pay her off to not talk about her experiences on the show, Ugh. which she declined. So, I mean, it's amazing because, like, even with laws in place for, like, child actors now, like the Coogan account, uh, if you don't know about this, Jackie Coogan was a child actor. He grew up, you would know him as Uncle Fester on the original Adams Family. Um, when he was a child actor, he was, like, the highest paid child actor, and his parents took all his money and, and basically blew it on themselves. Like, they just spent it on everything, and he had no savings as an adult. So they started the Coogan account where they take a percentage of a child actor's wages and put this in, in an account where the parents can't touch it you know, to, to help children. And there's also times where you have to stop and do schoolwork on the set if you're of a certain age or until you're a certain age. But it's still a pretty horrible place to be a child. You see some pretty wild stuff, fake and real. Uh, you're judged constantly. Uh, she said that she was made to feel terrible on the set of Sam and Kat. She started to feel deep anxiety and shame when Ariana Grande began to get better treatment on the set than she did because she was more, more popular and became more famous. Uh, but, you know, since then... She has not been in a lot of things. She started writing and directing, um, and she has been in therapy and taken control of her life. Now, I will say that at first, I wasn't going to read this because I did not know what iCarly was. I did not know who this actress was, and it sounds really sad. But then, like the title, I just kept going back to that title, and it has received starred reviews like all around from every publication, and it's it's really incredible. 
And again, going back to the title, you know, I'm glad my mom died. You know, she says she feels like she earned the right to write such a provocative title because of what she went through with her mother. Um, and anyone who has lived with a parent or parents with mental illness, you know, understand this. And, and it's a brave and brutally honest look at surviving it. You know, it's very hard to have had a parent that causes all this damage, but that you also love. And they also love you in their own way and want what they think is best for you in their own way. And it's also an interesting look behind the scenes of Hollywood. You know, I learned a lot about casting and callbacks and children on the set and contracts. Those all started with C, I just realized. But like things I had never learned before, uh, it was it was excellent. I mean, like I said, it's really hard to read and very, very, very honest. Uh, I do want to give content warnings for ableist and racist language, usually on her mother's part. Uh, sexism, child abuse and neglect, disordered eating and body shaming, mental illness, including anxiety and OCD, illness and death of a loved one. This is I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Yeah, that title, that gets you. <laughs> I've, I've actually heard yeah. from multiple people now, though, that it's a really, 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 really good book. I do know iCarly. Yeah. Long time. Yeah, I'm much older than everyone else. Oh. <laughs> I was like, no, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I had to look it up. I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> to be fair, I never have seen like a single episode. I just know I lived in L.A. like at the time that it was, I think, still filming. And like I was at the the Starlight Bowl like to see like an outside concert when all of a sudden all these people convened behind me. And it's because the other star of that show was there and I had to Google it. And that's how I know. <laughs> Miranda Cosgrove, I think is her name. Yeah. Anyway, and I was like, yeah, oh, yeah I, like who I had also not heard of. And so I had to Google her and then it was like, Miranda Cosgrove was the highest paid child actor. And I was like, oh, like in 2012, I was like, oh, oh. That, was ago. <laughs> that was, that was literally a decade. Oh my gosh. Ew, wow. it was a decade ago. No, moving on. <laughs> Apply some eye cream. Um, yeah, I'm gonna take us in a real different direction now. But the but the happy book and a book that I love so much that it actually didn't come out today. It came out last week, but I knew y'all didn't talk about it, so I'm gonna talk about it. That is Husband Material by Alexis Hall. Alexis Hall is my bestie in my head. I want to know him. He is, I think, now in the auto read camp for me as well. I've talked about him, I know, before, probably for some other book, maybe like Rosalind takes the cake. But anyway, uh, in this book, this is the second book in the London Collins. Colin? <laughs> the London Calling series. It's the sequin. <laughs> the sequin. I can't talk today. Oh my gosh. It's the sequel to <laughs> Boyfriend Material. Not the sequins. Uh, and if you didn't read Boyfriend Material, I suppose we have, you know, a spoiler like to kick us right off because this one's called Husband Material. So like, hey, the couple made it. But these are romances. So like, you kind of know. So Luke and Oliver are the main characters, obviously, in Boyfriend Material. And now they are back for the second book. Just a little bit of background. So Luke, who goes, his real name is Lucien uh, O'Donnell, is the son of like rock star parents who split up when he was a kid. And then his dad, who is kind of in and out of rehab, is now like bracing for this professional comeback. And that means that Luke was suddenly thrust into the public eye again. And then this compromising photo was taken of him when he was like out partying and it got him in hot water at the charity where he works, which, by the way, is a <laughs> charity to preserve like the life of a endangered dung beetle. And then they named it after like the species of beetle, but it abbreviates to C-R-A-P-P. -P, so it's crap. And he tries to, you know, bring that up to them. They're like, what? We don't see the problem. <laughs> so anyway, um, fearing that Luke's sort of particular variety of queer, you know, in air quotes, which is gross, but is going to cause 
harm to the charity and to its, you know, its its like reputation basically among donors and, you know, that they're they're afraid of losing those donors. His boss all but orders him to find like a nice normal fake boyfriend to clean up his image. And so he does embark on this fake relationship with this person who I cannot remember. I think he just he knows him as like a friend of a friend of a friend. It's this very straight-laced, squeaky clean barrister named Oliver who agrees to do it for like similar issues of like needing to solve an image thing at work, although from a very different, you know, perspective. And so they get together. It's fake dating. Wouldn't you know? Things get complicated. And, uh, you know, go go from there. It's such a fun book. These books are hilarious. And that is my favorite part about them. So now we have flashed two years forward in this book, Husband Material. They have been together this whole time. Things are going great. Luke still has a lot of baggage and they don't see eye to eye necessarily on a couple things. The main thing that sort of squeezes its way into their relationship and interesting kind of points throughout their life is that Oliver, who was closeted for a really long time, um, is now out and proud, but it also does not feel like connected to a lot of the practices around queer culture and like in the community. He's not a person who likes to like, you know, do the whole rainbow everything. And he's not like really huge into pride celebrations. Like he loves that for other people. Luke and him sort of disagree a little bit on that because Luke's like, but it's our community. Like, you should want to be a part of it. And Oliver's like, I don't want to be told the right way to be gay. And that theme again pops up because now as we open at this book, Luke's best friend is getting married. And it's one of four different weddings in this book because they have officially reached that age where everyone around them is getting married. So the book opens, Luke is actually at the what do the, the Brits call it? The hen, like the bachelorette party <laughs> for his best friend, Bridget. He is the maid of honor. Um, and at this kind of, you know, event, he ends up running into an ex and that ex is getting married. It's the ex that like basically kind of ruined his life in the first book by doing like a tell-all to the tabloids. And now Luke is feeling also a little bit competitive about it, kind of, even though he doesn't want anything to do with that ex, but he sees that he's getting married. So he's like, should me and Oliver be getting married? And he very oddly, weirdly, kind of unintendingly ends up proposing to Oliver. And like, uh, okay, Oliver kind of agrees, maybe? Yes. But then the rest of the book is sort of the unfolding of these two as they go through the wedding, you know, rituals and processes of all these different people and try to examine for themselves, like, is this something that we want for ourselves? Like, the answer seems to be yes, but also, I don't know. And then again, these themes pop up of... Luke having a ton of insecurity about commitment in general gets a little freaked out at the idea of moving in with Oliver, even though Oliver's like, but your stuff is all here, you know? (laughs) And then the idea will come up when Luke wants to go, you know, hang with a certain subset of friends and wants to do certain activities and likes to be in like the, one of the weddings is very like club atmosphere, for example. And again, Oliver's like, this isn't my bag and it shouldn't have to be for you to support like my, my queerness, like, et cetera. The, the two best parts of these books, this series, and I, the way that this one ends, I do believe we're setting ourselves up for a third, is A, the dialogue. Like, Alexis Hall does dialogue so well. The banter between friends is that perfect, like, the, you know, like, silly jokes that are, like, maybe not funny on, like, paper, but that are in the context of, like, a friendship. That silliness, that, like, I don't know, just report. Like, yeah, it's so good. Like, it's just fantastic to watch them all interact. Everybody from Luke and Oliver to, like, Luke and his friend group extended to his mom, who he has a really, like, interesting relationship with. And then the second best part about it is that, again, a lot of conflict happens, but Luke and Oliver 
uh, confront it all head on and sit and like have conversations about it that of course get a little uncomfortable, but they both put their feelings on the line and work through them. And the big kind of, you know, third act blah that you, uh, you know, we, you get in a romance is not necessarily about them. Like it's actually a little bit external, kind of. It was just so great to see the couple working through that kind of thing and having those conversations. There's not like a ton of miscommunication. I mean, there's maybe one little, two little bits, but they always get addressed. And it's just nice to see that like real time, you know, characters working through their stuff and having that conversation. Because sometimes in romance novels, like the, the whole linchpin is like this big miscommunication where you're screaming at the book, like, just tell him how you feel. And there's maybe a little bit of that, but you're, we're getting this all from Luke's perspective. There's, you know, he's giving you his monologue. So you also see him working it out and then going to Oliver to like have the discussion. And that's just really nice to see. So super funny, a little bit sexy. Just excellent dialogue. I love the heck out of these two characters. And this one is so good on audio. I think it's uh, Joe Jameson that reads these. And he just does such an excellent job the way he does Oliver's voice when he says, Lucian. I'm like, do you want to date me? Um, I don't know you or anything about you. But anyway, <laughs> it's so much fun. I love I, the minute I saw this book was coming out, I had to have it. So that is Husband Material by Alexis Hall. Well, now I have to write a book and name a character Colin Sequence. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. That would be I could not talk. <laughs> It's early. It's all right. It's very early where you are. I mean, it it's early for me, especially because I didn't go to bed, and it's even earlier for you because you're on the other side of the country. You know. So we are going to hear from another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Inez Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
All right, so my next pick for today, we are going to talk about some books now that we might not have read, but they are, you know, today's releases and hardcover and paperback that we're excited about. I'm going to kick it off with High Times in Low Parliament by Kelly Robson. Robson wrote a novella several years ago that I might have even talked about on the show uh, called Gods, Monsters, and the Lucky Peach. It was nominated for and won many awards. I loved it so much. I've been waiting for a new one. And this one is a queer fantasy set in 18th century London about Lana, who is a scribe, all about the writing, who writes and delivers messages. And in the course of doing this job, somehow ticks off a fairy who banishes her to Parliament. So now she is a transcriber for Parliament the government, and it's no fun, and uh, everyone there just fights all the time and nothing gets accomplished, and since they keep having a hung vote, it's looking like a war is going to happen, because those are the rules if you can't decide, they just have to have war, and so Lana is going to try and keep it from happening, along with the help of a human named Eloquentia and a fairy named Bugbite. Uh, also, I want to point out that I did talk about Princess Flora Linda and the Forty Flight Tower by Tamsin Muir on the show last year or the year before. And if you've not read it yet, it's excellent and also has a very excellent fairy named Cobweb. I'm all about the fairy names. Uh, so this one sounds utterly charming, and I hope to read it very soon. It is High Times in the Low Parliament by Kelly Robson. You just said so many great names <laughs> in succession. <laughs> Every single one was better than the last <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so my first pick, both of mine are uh, books that are out today and that I just couldn't get to, but I'm excited to start. My first one is Kosher Soul by Michael W. Twitty. Michael W. Twitty, you may have heard of him, is a culinary historian, a James Beard Award winner for his writing, and he's the author of this fantastic book called The Cooking Gene, which is a culinary history, an African-American culinary history through the Old South. And now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm pretty sure that's actually the subtitle to this book, like almost verbatim. But um, so he in that book, he traces his ancestry through food, going all the way back to Africa and enslavement to um, America now and to you know emancipation. It's about the origins of like soul food, barbecue, just like Southern cuisine in general. And it uses it meaning he goes through you know store like oral histories recipes genetic tests like obviously historical documents and then also travels and it's just a really really phenomenal look at this history of african american food and you know, black food and it is he is also featured i should say in the I don't know if it's the first or second episode but in that the one of those first two of the netflix documentary high on the hog which, oh my gosh, go watch it and cry. It's such a such a phenomenal work. But uh, again, because he's a food historian, he does a really interesting portion of, of one of those episodes. So this latest book, in, in this latest book, Kosher Soul, he is now exploring the intersection of two of, you know, our country's most like distinctive culinary cultures and really in the world. And that's the foods and traditions of the African Atlantic and then the global Jewish diaspora. So he explores issues of memory, identity, and food to talk about he himself and I think also his journey through and in, into and through Judaism. And then, of course, African cuisine and how black cuisine and Jewish cuisine or, you know, African American cuisine overlap in more ways that people like 
you know, think or like give credit to. The book also includes, I think, something like up to 50 recipes. And like, I love a book that includes recipes plus, you know, history. So this sounds very much up my bag. And I really loved the cooking gene. So I'm excited for this one. And that is Kosher Soul by Michael W. Twitty. I'm also very excited for that one. Yes, I'm excited. I just got it yesterday. I'm also excited for The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast by Kirk Wallace Johnson. We've been waiting for a very long time for a new book from Kirk Wallace Johnson. He is the author of The Feather Thief, which I think we talked about on the show. I think it's been like five years at least since that came out. It's now being made into a movie. It's about, it's the true story of the musical prodigy who broke into an Natural Museum of History in England while on tour and stole a ton of feathers from the museum to make fly fishing ties. And it's that wild story. And Kirk Wallace Johnson actually heard the story while he himself was fly fishing, but the person who told it to him didn't know what happened to the guy who stole it. Like, was he prosecuted? Was he caught? You know, and so he went and looked it up for himself and pretty exciting. So this new book, The Fisherman and the Dragon, is about racism and xenophobia on the Texas Gulf Coast in the late 1970s. Again, a true story. It's about how overfishing and pollution were killing the shrimp and crab populations uh, and causing problems for the fishermen who had fished the area for decades, like, you know, generations of families. Uh, And how instead of blaming overfishing and pollution, they decided it was the fault of the newly resettled Vietnamese population. They were taking all of their food. And so... These white fishermen were going to do something about it. They declared war on them. They made threats. They pulled guns. And then when a Vietnamese fisherman killed a white fisherman in self-defense, the Ku Klux Klan decided this would be a really great place to set up, you know, a residence and spread their hate uh, and started a campaign of violence and fear against the Vietnamese population. And Johnson tells this little-known point in American history uh, by, quote, drawing upon a trove of never-before-published material, including FBI and ATF records, unprecedented access to case files, and scores of firsthand interviews with Klansmen, shrimpers, law enforcement, environmental activists, lawyers, perpetrators, and victims. So it sounds fantastic. It is called The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast by Kirk Wallace Johnson. All right, I'm excited for that one, too. And my next one that I have not read yet, but I'm also very excited about, is Three Assassins by Kutaro Isaka, and that's translated from Japanese by Sam Melissa. So in case you are like, ah, where have I heard that name before? Kutaro Isaka is the author of Bullet Train, which is being, well, not being adapted. It is adapted. It dropped on the 5th, on Friday the 5th. It's an adaptation starring uh, Brad Pitt. I think Sandra Bullock and Bad Bunny, which I'm just so tickled by. (laughs) Um, So this book was actually published uh, originally and before Bullet Train. So the original name of Bullet Train is Maria Beetle that came out. But this original version of Three Assassins, which was called Grasshopper, was published before um, Maria Beetle. But sometimes that's just the way this goes. You know, books get translated out of order. In this one, the main character, Suzuki, is a former math teacher who is who actually leaves his like everything about his normal life and, you know, rule abiding life to go work this low level job with a front company that is operated by the notorious crime gang that also killed his wife. So he's absolutely on a mission for revenge. And he goes in there with a the whole intention of killing the son of the gang's leader in, you know, to, to again, avenge the death of his own wife. 
But something goes awry that I don't know if it's a spoiler, so I guess I just won't say it, <laughs> just in case. But uh, it quickly leaves him a little derailed as to what his original mission was going to be. And then he also discovers that this is a really unusual gang of assassins. There's somebody known as the Cicada, and that person is a knife expert. There's one known as the Pusher, who nudges, which is hilarious as a word, just tap, tap, tapity tap and people into oncoming traffic. And then the Whale whispers these little, like, thoughts to his victim until they are unfortunately pushed into taking their own lives. So it's basically, you know, TLDR, these people are not going to be easy to take out. And again, the original point of like his mission is a little bit derailed. So like a little bit what now? So yeah, I'm really, really excited for this. I've been trying to read more work and translation, especially more like horror and mystery, etc. And yeah, this one sounds really fun. So that's Three Assassins by Kotaro Isaka, translated from Japanese by Sam Melissa. All right. So those are the books that we have read, the books that we are excited about. Now it is time for a few paperback releases, and by a few, I mean a lot, just like all those books that fell out of my bag. <laughs> uh, starting with Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. I talked about this last year on the September 14th show. It's about a furniture store owner in Harlem in the 1960s who dabbles in some light fencing and ends up getting drawn into a heist with dangerous mobsters. Uh, at the beginning of this year, Colson Whitehead did tease a sequel of sorts, so that's something to look forward to. I think it's coming next year. Gone for Good by Joanna Schaffhausen. I talked about this on the August 10th show last year. It's about Detective Annalisa Vega, who is investigating the murder of a woman who was investigating the Lovelorn Killer, a series of murders that were unsolved. She was looking into these on message boards, and she herself is killed. The Lovelorn Killer has been inactive for many years, but it looks like he might have come out of retirement. Uh, book two, the second in the Annalisa Vega series, is out today in hardcover. It's called Long Gone. And I also highly recommend uh, Schaffhausen's Ellery Hathaway series, which has four or five now. I find those to be great mysteries as well. Mm. Uh, the Archer by Shruti Swami, which got tons and tons and tons of praise, which I still need to read Same. about a young woman coming of age in 1960s and 1970s era Bombay. You Can't Be Serious by Cal Penn. Uh, he is the actor known for the Harold and Kumar franchise, House and Designated Survivor, among other things. Uh, he also worked for Obama at the White House for a while. And this is the story of his life and his acting and his careers and coming out as a gay man in Hollywood. Poet Warrior, a memoir by Joe Harjo. Harjo was the first Native American to be the U.S. Poet Laureate, which she served for three terms. And this is her beautiful memoir about her experiences as a Native American in the United States, her love for words and poetry, and lots more. White Smoke by Tiffany D. Jackson. I talked about this on the September 14th show as well. Uh, it's a scary YA about a young black teen and her family who move into a new house that might be, read, is most definitely haunted. It's a pretty scary one for a YA book, so I highly recommend it. Uh, the Reading List by Sarah Nisha Adams is a lovely read about a teen who works at the local library and finds a reading list of book recommendations and passes it along to an elderly patron who is looking for a way to connect with his granddaughter, and they all read the books together. 
This Will All Be Over Soon, a memoir by Cecily Strong. I talked about this on the August 10th show last year. Strong is best known as a cast member from SNL. She's also done a lot of other acting. Uh, And this is a beautiful, slim memoir uh, where she talks about the death of her cousin and how it affected her and the life lessons she's learned since then about death and also about living during a pandemic. It's very funny and also quite sad. A few paperback originals today, starting with Bright, a memoir by Kiki Petrosino. She is a poet, and this is her first full-length essay collection, which is an extended meditation on her upbringing in a mixed Black and Italian-American family. Mr. Perfect on Paper by Jean Meltzer. Meltzer wrote The Matzo Ball, which is a romance novel that came out a couple years ago that I loved so much. Uh, This is about the creator and CEO of a popular Jewish dating app called JMate, and she's embarrassed when her own perfect husband list is shared on national television, And the host of that show tries to help her find Mr. Perfect because it's driving his ratings while maybe also falling for her himself. And Mad About You by Mahari McFarlane. This is about a young woman who calls off her engagement to the guy everyone thinks is the perfect man and moves in with a stranger down the hall. They both have secrets and they both might have feelings. So those are some paperbacks out today. So Vanessa, what are you going to read next? I am very jazzed about both of my next ones. Uh, the first one is More Than You'll Ever Know by Katie Gutierrez. My voice is cracking very interestingly right now, and we're all going to ride this train. Um, it is a mystery that's told in like dual timelines about a cr- true crime writer who is look like now we're looking back at the life of this woman in I forget what year, like maybe the 50s, 60s, who lived a double life in Mexico City. Like uh, it's and she's kind of diving into the specifics of how and why she did this. And it's a mystery that has been recommended by several people that I trust very much with their mystery recommendations. So I can't wait to get into that one. And then The Ballad of Perilous Graves by Alex Jennings, which is a fantasy, like a dark fantasy set in New Orleans that Sharifa just sold me on a few days ago. So yeah, I'm really excited for both of those. What about you? I talked about both of those on the show. I know. Both <laughs> I was like, yeah. I will say that More Than You'll Ever Know is actually in, uh, the Part of it takes place in the 80s because 80s, the thank you. I couldn't remember. earthquake in Mexico yes, in yes, yes. plays a big part in the storyline. And The Ballad of Perilous Graves, just excellent, excellent. So much going on that you have to just like take immediately. I know. Your brain <laughs> That's what I heard. Oh, I can't just wait. go with it. Hold on tight. And it's really fun. Um, I am halfway through The Book Eaters, which Ooh. Danica talked about on the show last week. And by all accounts, I should love this book. Uh, everything about it sounds amazing. And spoiler, I love it so much. It's so good. It <laughs> okay, has good. incredible reviews, incredible ratings. It it's so much fun. Uh, and because T. Kingfisher apparently never sleeps. Oh my gosh, this is a new uh, book? I just got the new, there's a new one. It's oh coming God. out uh, March 28th of next year called A House with Good Bones. And it's a contemporary horror novel set in the South. Sort of like the other two that I love that I'm forgetting now. The hollow places and the twisted ones. There we go. Yep. I got them. You did. You got there. So I, I just, but like, uh, just read, you know, one that came out a few weeks ago. That was like the fall of House of Usher story. Yeah. Um, you know, Nettle and Bone, which uh, I'm just going to say it again. I might say this every episode now. Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher, which came out at the beginning of the year. So amazing. One of my favorite books of the year. Such an awesome fairy tale. Why isn't everyone reading about the demon chicken? I want to know because 
It's it's my top five of the year for sure. Just so fun. I've had it on hold since you talked about it, so it should be dropping on me any day. Oh now. my goodness, so good. I just love everything that she does. I tried to read the other T. Kingfisher book, but there were mushrooms. All right. And I am That's scared. Right. I, think, I think the last time we recorded was when I talked about that one, right? I think so. Yes. I had not seen the cover. Yeah. <laughs> I have now seen the cover. You don't like mushrooms. I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to read it so bad, but I was like, <laughs> we had a lot of promo for it at Book Riot and different, you know, because a lot of people love that book. And every time I had to edit something that had the newsletter, I was like, oh, God, oh, oh, I, I can't do this. But yes, I will read Nettle and Bone. <laughs> and then I photoshopped that picture of the village for you, and I <laughs> yeah, she took out all the mushroom houses. I laughed so hard. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I have a good friend in Liberty. <laughs> this is what we do with our sons. <laughs> yeah, anything to not do my work, I'm there. I'm like, what can I do now? <laughs> I'm going to photoshop out some mushrooms. Of, with mushrooms missing from a photo, yeah. <laughs> so there we have it. Those are lots of books. So <laughs> many good books. And that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Sink, who's going to have to remove a very bad word that I said before we started recording. Well, we started recording, but before the show. Yes. Because I was so hot. It's so hot in here. <laughs> Just came out of my mouth. I uh, like, don't <laughs> want to sing the song, but <laughs> I don't want to tell you to do that thing. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Uh, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Vanessa and I hang out on Instagram. She is Buenos Dias SD. I am Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you get your books and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash allthebooks, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter, where you will find more books that you can shove into your brain. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com, and don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search bookriot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.